Hello! Greetings. We're so glad that you have interest in spiritual things, and we're very glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, or Disciples Making Disciples, in the west side of Los Angeles. And I'm sure you agree that one of the issues that is extremely f complicated and fraught with difficulty, perhaps beyond most others, is that of human sexuality. But God and Christ, through the Bible and the creation, have established for us not only a healthy sexuality, but also a lot of connections between, of all things, theology and sexuality. That in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, that God made male and female in, quote-unquote, our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And that in chapter 2 and verse 24, that a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That in Romans 1, 18 and 19, that God's divine nature is manifest in the creation. And, of course, the divine nature of God is the one and three and the three and one, and that is best seen in man, made in the our image. God, in John chapter 17, 20-23, is revealed to be one in relational unity. That the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and that, the, the Son should, that we should be one as they are one, that the Son may be in us as the Father is in Him and He is in the Father, and that we can share in that relational unity. Now, when it comes to humanity, what relationship somewhat parallels that? Well, it's the sexual relationship. Because a man and a woman become t are two, yet they become one flesh in Matthew 19, 4-6. In Ephesians 5, 31-32, Paul will make this analogy explicit. That uh, he will quote Genesis 2, 24, and then say that, that the mystery is profound, but he says it refers to Christ and the church. So human sexuality was created as good. It has its good purpose still in the covenant of a marriage of, of a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It's that glimpse of that relational unity that reflects the relational unity within the Godhead. And that procreation is a consequence of that sexuality. Children are the embodied representations of how two become one flesh, reflecting both characteristics of the mother and the father. As God has shared in love and created offspring, us, in his image in Acts 17. And so the Bible has a lot to say about healthy sexuality, and it connects it very powerfully to how we understand ourselves as made in God's image. But our culture has very different ideas, and they often consider less than healthy sexual behavior as perfectly acceptable, and they often glory in brokenness. It's really a counterfeit kind of sexuality. It's something that appears to be good and beneficial and healthy, but it's really broken, degraded, and impoverished. This is especially and painfully apparent and how obsessed our culture is with sex. Movies and television shows always seem to feature sexual relationships. The media is frequently discussing matters of sexuality. And everywhere you look, it looks like people are trying to sell things with sex appeal, from gum to cars. So why does everything seem to revolve around sex in modern Western culture? It's not because there is a whole lot more sexual behavior going on. There's been sexual behavior going on as long as there have been people. Until recently, it's been mostly in private. It's only now aggressively publicized and promoted. So why is the sexuality become so center stage? What does God have to say about such things? Well, when we go back to Romans chapter 1, we get an idea of what happens when a culture no longer honors God as creator or understand themselves as having been made in his image. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that they who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also give approval to those who practice them seems so awful, right? But notice that the fundamental error in such a culture is that they professed wisdom, but really became foolish, futile, and dark in their thinking, and they gave to the creature the glory and honor due to the Creator. Because when you no longer honor God as God and think you're made in His image, you still are confronted with a world with lots of powerful forces beyond your control. And so what they invariably end up doing is turning them into some kind of divine thing. They try to consider the forces around them as God. And because of that, God gives them over to their lusts. Because they're just they're just they don't see themselves as made in his image, therefore they, they think themselves slaves to these forces. If they're slaves to the forces, and one of the forces is love and lust, they're slaves to lust. But that was then, right? Well, we have a acceptance and promotion of a philosophical perfect storm in our culture among rationalism, modernism, scientism, Darwinism, Epicureanism, and consumerism. Our culture no longer honors God as a creator because of these things, nor does it consider its members as humans is made in his image. However, at the same time, it's not like humans have stopped actually bearing the image of God. As much as they try to deny God, they still bear his image. And a lot of people still understand that there's something more to life than this life. And they seek meaningful connections or relationship with others. As we've noted, sex is designed by God in its purest form to provide a glimpse of that relational unity which exists within the Godhead and which ought to exist among the people of God and God himself. So what happens when people no longer honor God as their creator, they don't see themselves as made in his image, but still recognize that need of finding something greater than yourself and looking for something to be relationally connected to somebody and... Notice that in human sexuality, there is a transcendental experience of relational unity. Well, when, when you don't recognize God as God, you don't look at yourself as made in His image, but you see, feel that transcendental experience of connectivity and sexuality, you make sex a God because of how powerful that force is. And in fact, throughout time, one of the most powerful forces that's been divinized or made a god here. You know, when when Paul here talks about how they uh, 
worshipped all these different creatures. A lot of things involved fertility. Many of the earliest carvings that have been dug up have been of women, little figurines of, of, of a female form, we'll say, with exaggerated sexual characteristics, breasts or, or the uh, Negroian region. Uh, Ishtar was a goddess of love for the Sumerians in the later Mesopotamian cultures. There was a lot of ritual sexual behavior, prominence, uh, that was supposedly in honor of that goddess. And the same uh, trend existed among the Canaanites. Even the Bible, in Genesis 38 and verse 21, uh, after Judah had visited Tamar, in this story where Tamar is actually his daughter-in-law, and he was supposed to have given his third son to her uh, based upon the law of the Leveret marriage. Uh, yet he had not done so, uh, and he had withheld her son. And so he, she had taken on the form of a prostitute, uh, a prostitute, and uh, had taken his staff and seal as her, as payment. And when he went to provide the full payment that for which the the, the down payment was, the 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 the, the, the staff and this cord were signs. Uh, he, uh, he asked, uh, the, the, his friend who went out asked, uh, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anayim at the roadside? They said, there has been no cult prostitute here. Uh, we see that that was the thing. In Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18, here, here's a verse that many people have misunderstood because of how it's been rendered in a lot of versions. Uh, a lot of people have looked at it in terms of purely just the act of sexual activity uh, here. But we can see, based on some of the newer translations, uh, what's really going on here in verse 17. Uh, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of Yahweh your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to Yahweh your God. Uh, some of these later, earlier versions talked about uh, somebody who participated in homosexuality or sodomite. And, and while the male cult prostitutes would have been participating in that behavior, uh, it was a specific type of that kind of behavior. These are temple prostitutes. These are men and women who are in the hire or in the facilities of a, of a temple, normally of a fertility god and or goddess. And they participate in sexual activity. And the idea is that by having sexual activity with such people, you are honoring the god or goddess of fertility uh, and will have a favorable outcome. Uh, the idea was in Canaanite culture that a priest of Baal would participate in ritual sex with a priestess of Astarte, and that would encourage fertility and fecundity for the year. And people very clearly saw the com comparison between the human sexual act that led to children and the um, rains and the other forces that went into uh, crop growing. And so they often made parallels between the two. Now, and this was not just limited to ancient Near Eastern culture. The Greco-Roman uh, culture with the uh, cult trying Aphrodite and Venus was legendary, uh, especially in Corinth. Was was much known to be a, to act like a Corinthian was to engage in, in sensuality, and particularly in terms of sexual morality with prostitutes, cult prostitutes, in the Temple of Aphrodite. And really, it's just not that different today. Uh, our culture may not doesn't honor God as our Creator and doesn't see humanity made in, the, in His image. Um, where they may not link fertility in terms of the ground with uh, fertility in terms of people as much, uh, nor are they necessarily even looking at sexuality in terms of fertility. Nevertheless, they recognize that in sexuality there's a mystical transcendental experience, and, and therefore people make a god out of that experience. 
And we see how uh, this the worship of, of sexuality is manifest in our culture through the obsession and, and the norming of sexual behavior. And it's just obvious. Everywhere you go, there's obsession about sex. Uh, sex in Western culture is no longer a privilege. It is an alienable right, and it's one that's supposed to be exercised frequently and expected to be exercised frequently. Uh, the pursuit of a contented sex life is, in fact, expected. That if you do not enjoy such a life, is is you are an object of pity. If somebody who is is, is maintains their virginity in their twenties, thirties, forties, it becomes a, an object of pity, so to speak. Our culture can't really comprehend the idea that anybody would voluntarily renounce sexual behavior. That one would become a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. In Matthew 19.12 or 1 Corinthians 7 would understand that there was a special gift in celibacy. And in fact, anybody who would suggest that certain people must renounce certain forms of sexual lust and behavior if they are going to be right with God are viewed as bigoted, intolerant, oppressive, repressive, and a throwback to an earlier age. And, and notice how Christians who are treated for suggestive for those who experience same-sex desire should not act on them based upon what we read in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it's not even just there. It's also in tr- proving true in terms of divorced people. And it's not even just in the world where that could be expected, but even among the people of God, where there are a lot of people who claim that the right, quote-unquote, to sexual satisfaction should trump what Jesus has explained, uh, declared explicitly about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, 3-9, because, after all, it's not, man for, it's not good for man to be alone. And yet, uh, that's becoming a major problem among the Lord's body of people who have philosophically adopted the view that sex is a good to be pursued at, at all costs, and uh, therefore carve out reasons why they should be able to have sex in a sanctified relationship, uh, as opposed to trying to truly understand what God has revealed in God's purposes for marriage and God's purposes for um, the importance of covenant and the maintenance of covenant. Now, it's one thing for Christians to have their own kind of weird crackpot views about sexuality, and it's quite another, though, for them to expect anybody else to accept them or live by them. And meanwhile, there's a lot of money that's being spent in terms of time and money and effort to promote sexuality among us. Uh, marketing, the idea is sex sells. They're starting to challenge that a little bit, but it's still held as gospel in marketing firms around the country. Sexuality is seen as one of those universal experiences of mankind. It doesn't matter if you are in a blue state or a red state. It doesn't matter who your favorite soccer team is or your if or your favorite college football team. Uh, it doesn't matter what part of the world you live in. You like sex. And therefore, sexy things will be appealing things. The fact that also both men and women respond positively to attractive females and sexual innuendo. And therefore, advertising is saturated with sexuality. And and ever since the Victorian era, there are a lot of people who have tried to expand, quote-unquote, sexual freedom. And they see that culture has given greater license and permission regarding a variety of sexual practices. And there are a lot of cultural shifts in the 20s and the 60s, uh, and ever since, have resulted from these efforts. And in fact, our culture really is treating sex in a very sophomoric way, intoxicated by the freedom that they think they've got from these past strictures, but they haven't yet gotten to the point of getting to realize their excess and and to try to return to some kind of idea of responsible behavior. And that is why it seems in our culture sex is the answer. 
uh, people in, in our culture, uh, meanwhile, are, are isolated. They're alone. They're alienated from one another in a way that you've not seen before. A lot of people are seeking some kind of quote-unquote medication for their loneliness. Some find it in drugs. Some do need some prescription assistance with some things that they've got going on uh, in their mental health. Uh, but a lot of times, sex is what seems to be the answer. If you're lonely, you need to find somebody that you can have sex with. Are you depressed? Sex should help that. That if only you had a fulfilling sex life things will be better. And that's what culture tries to say. So people fall for this lie, and they seek more sexual intercourse, or more interesting forms of sexual intercourse, or different sexual partners, yet ultimately feel no better about themselves. And that's, of course, because sex is not the answer. If you find a lot of sexual partners, it doesn't mean that you automatically feel more attractive, more sexy, or less lonely. Having more frequent sexual intercourse does not automatically relieve depression, loneliness, or alienation. Because human sexuality cannot bear the burden culture would have it to bear. There's no doubt that God has made human sexuality to be enjoyable. But it's not everything. Because sexual intercourse on its own cannot provide a meaningful, accepting, satisfying relationship. After a while, the novelty can wear off, the enjoyment can be dulled. And as we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, as all the body functions fade, the time will come when sexual intercourse will not work as well, and that desire for it will fade. It's really a bill of goods that our culture has sold us. Because culture no longer considers God as God. And so when you don't consider God as God, you're going to lift something that is good and make it absolute to make it God. And sex is one of those things. But it's not God. And that's because this is idolatry at its purest form. Idolatry is when you take something good and make it absolute. And that's what our culture has done with sex. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 1. When you no longer honor God as God, no longer consider yourself as made in His image, you're given over to lusts because you're a, you, you look to yourself as a slave to them or you see in them some kind of escape, some kind of hope, some kind of transcendental relational experience that makes you feel better. And you pursue that like a drug and it just isn't enough. God can satisfy and provide all things because He is absolute. But nothing that He made is absolute, so there's nothing that He made that can satisfy the way He can satisfy. In Romans 8, 31-39, we get that idea that if God is for us, who can be against us? That, uh, that God's love, we're not separate from God's love, that God's love is what we should seek. God's love is what will satisfy us truly. For millennia, man has made God out of sex. Their lusts were not fully satisfied, yearning for something greater than they still remained. And thus, we cannot consider human sexuality to be God. God made human sexuality. It remains good, but it cannot really satisfy. So we can see what happens when, when humans do not honor God as their creator. They don't see themselves made in his image, but recognize the wonderful experience that's in sex, that's mystical and transcendental, and they try to make a God out of it. That This leads to a sexolatry in our culture. But it can't really satisfy to the fullest extent. A person who is always able to satisfy every sexual desire every time they have it will not be made full thereby, and they will gain very little. So we need to recognize that human sexuality is good, because the God who created it is good. God created for a man and a woman to become one flesh in the boundaries of the covenant marriage. And in doing that, it provides a glimpse of that relational union, the Godhead, the one that God desires to share with us and for us to share with each other in Christ in John 17 Ephesians chapter 5. And we cannot accept any substitutes. We must honor God as God, seek relational unity with Him as He is relational unity with Himself, maintain our bodies in sanctification and holiness to His glory 
and his honor in First Thessalonians chapter 4. So hope that we have encouraged you in many ways regarding the truth that God has taught about the subject of sexuality. If we can be a further encouragement, if you'd like to talk some more about the things we've mentioned, maybe you've got some questions, uh, maybe you'd like to learn more about how to become a Christian, or just have a prayer request, need to talk, however I can be of service, please let me know, please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com, that's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Venture to Christ, like to visit with us at our assemblies, or if we can be of any service you anyway, please find us online at VentureToChrist.org. We're also on social media. We again thank you, and have a great day.